One of my first few years in student ministry, I got subpoenaed to court for a crime that one of my students committed. And look, it's not as serious as it sounds, but I was still a nervous wreck. I'm the type of person I don't like to get in trouble. I generally follow the rules, emphasis on generally. But here's what happened. It all started one night in our town's local park. This was a small town of about 8,000 people, so I'd often hang out with students after church in the park. And, and we were driving from one part of the park to another part and kind of this convoy of students and their vehicles. And when we get to the other side of the park and get out of our cars, lo and behold, here comes the police. And I immediately thought, oh boy, what did we do now? <laughs> and the cop gets out of his car, and in small town fashion, he knows me and I know him, you know how that goes. And he comes up to tell me that one of the teenage boys in a truck behind me squealed his tires and did what's called a burnout. You guys familiar with that? You don't do that though, do you? No. And doing that in the park, uh, someone called the cops, and he got a ticket for reckless driving. Now, it's important to clarify that I did not see or hear of this alleged burnout, okay? Honestly, like I had no idea this had occurred. But here I was. I was caught in the middle, and the cop gives him a ticket, and we go on about our business. But sure enough, a few weeks later, I get a subpoena in the church mail <laughs> because the student who did not or did, through the burnout, is fighting the ticket of court. And his lawyer, he wants me to be a witness to his innocence. So the day comes, and I walk across the town square from First Baptist Church to City Court. And I'm sweating bullets, man. I'm in my dress clothes, and I've never been involved in anything like this, been in court. And the judge comes in, he's in his robe. There's like five people in the whole room. But the proceedings begin, and I get called up to the stand, and the lawyer, he makes sure to introduce me. This is the youth minister of First Baptist Church. And that's when I realized that I was being used. Yeah. So the, the, the judge, he asked me, he says, son, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? I raised my right hand, and I said, amen. No, I, I said, I do. I've seen enough TV shows. I said, I do. And he proceeds to question me about the night in the park. But all I can tell him, I said, honestly, I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. And the lawyer says, aha, he didn't see anything. He didn't hear anything. He's innocent, right? And I was like, oh, no. It was a whole ordeal. And eventually, the charges stood. He got the ticket. Yeah, and he even had to pay more for court costs. But let me tell you, I was a terrible witness. So if you ever get accused of a crime, do not call me, okay? You will go down. Now, look, I just told you that entire story because this morning we're going to talk about being witnesses. But not witnesses for a court case, no. Witnesses for the gospel. See, the New Testament often describes followers of Jesus with that word witness. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But what are we witnesses of? Well, unlike my experience in the park that night, we are witnesses of what we have seen and heard. We are witnesses of the gospel of Jesus, and as witnesses, we're called to take that message to others. That's our mission. And man, that mission is going to become so important as we move forward in history. As we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus, our witness is going to be more and more vital. And that's what we're going to see today as we continue walking through the book of Revelation. We're actually going to take on two whole chapters today. 
And you may be wondering why in the world we're covering so much ground in such a complicated book. You know, we could slow down. We could take several years to go through all this, and you people would be sick of me. But rather, we have chosen intentionally to kind of take a 30,000-foot view of Revelation. Instead of getting into all the details, we want to highlight the big movements and themes of this book. And we want to focus on the central message that God has for us in Revelation. We don't want it to get lost in the details. And that's what I've tried to emphasize from the beginning. God did not give us the book of Revelation to confuse us or to cause debate or so we could have a neat, tidy timeline of the end of the world, or so we could watch the news and look for the signs. No, God gave us the book of Revelation to teach us one central message. It's this. I've said it many times. Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. And this encouragement was originally given to first century churches. We saw the seven letters at the beginning that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. And then John began to recount these visions that he saw. Remember the seven seals were opened and chaos began to ensue on the earth. And then we got into the tribulation with the seven trumpets and things got even more chaotic. And this all begs the question, what will the church's mission be during this time of great tribulation? And what does this teach us about our mission now? Well, we find those answers in chapters of Revelation 10 and 11 where we see the witness of the church. So let's walk through these two chapters. And as we do, I want to give you four things about the witness of the church. So look with me first at Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So the first thing we notice here is that John is back on earth, right? He sees the angel coming down from heaven. It's this huge angel with one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. And he cries out with his booming voice, and there's seven thunders. We got seven seals, seven trumpets. What's these seven thunders? Well, we don't know. (laughs) And apparently God doesn't want us to know because he tells John, he said, hey, don't write that down. Seal it up. And this reaffirms for us the fact that there are some things about the end of the world that God does not want us to know. There's some mystery here because if he told us everything, he said, look, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, we probably couldn't handle it. Like We'd go crazy. So we need to be okay with this mystery. And then we saw the angel, he swears an oath. Notice what he swears at the end of verse 6. He says that there would be no more delay. In other words, this is it. This is the end. What we're going to experience from here on is the last scene in God's redemptive drama. And this last scene is symbolized by a little scroll in a big angel's hand. And John is commanded, if we read on, to go to the angel, take the scroll, and get this. 
to eat it. Wait, eat it? Yeah, that's right, to eat the scroll. What is going on there? Well, this would be more strange if, or stranger if it wasn't something that we've seen before in the Bible. Remember that a lot of revelation pulls from the Old Testament, and that's the case here. There's someone else we, you may remember who once ate a scroll. His name was Ezekiel. Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet, and God gave him a scroll to eat, and his scroll was filled with mourning and lamentation because God wanted Ezekiel to intake the message himself before he could share it with the people. And this is what's happening with John. If if John is going to give out this message to the world, first he's got to take it in himself. Notice what John says about the scroll. He says it's, it's sweet like honey. So initially it tastes good, right? This is about God's word. This is about Jesus coming back. It's good. But when he hits his stomach, it's, it's bitter. So it goes down. It doesn't feel so good because what we see is what we're going to see is that this also includes the fact that God's people are going to be persecuted. It, it's a bitter, sweet message. And this leads us to the first thing we learn about our witness. Number one, we witness by the word. John's message is not John's message. It's actually God's message. He's not just making stuff up that sounds cool or sharing his thoughts and opinions. John is sharing what God has given him. And when it comes to our witness, to our mission, it is the same. We must tell the whole truth, the the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And the truth is found in Scripture. Our witness is a witness to the Word of God. So let me ask you, when is the last time you ate your Bible? Do you regularly feast? I saw that. Do you regularly feast on God's word? That was good. Or are you like my, my three-year-old who just wants to snack all day? All right? You kind of nibble here and nibble there, but you never really dive into the word. No, like we need a daily intake of God's word through study and, and meditation and memorization and not secondhand processed foods. You know, so often we turn to other people's teaching and other people's study of the Word through devotionals or books or curriculum. And that's kind of like eating a a Big Mac at McDonald's. It's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. It's tasty. It's cheap. But, you know, I use other books and devotionals to help me study and better engage the Word of God. But at the end of the day, we got to get in the Word for ourselves. we got to cook our own meals and eat what God gives us. Because here's the deal. The effectiveness of our witness is tied to our engagement with the word. Let me say that again. The effectiveness of our witness is tied to our engagement with the word. This is what the world needs to hear. Not my words or your words or the latest trendy inspirational message. No, people need the living and active word of God. And this need for the word is going to become more and more dire as we near the end. Check this out. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, he said this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Man, are we, are we there today? Do we see this? People with itching ears who put around themselves... People who tell them what they already believe. It's like the people who watch the certain news channel or read those certain articles or go to those certain places because they know those people are going to reaffirm and feed them 
feed them exactly what they want, right? We have itching ears. See, the closer and closer we get to these final days, I believe there will be a greater and greater need for the truth of the Bible. So to prepare ourselves for this and to have an effective witness right now, one of the most important things you can do is be engaged with the Word of God. Do you have a, a Bible reading plan that you're work, working through this year? I've found in my life that if I don't have a plan, I don't do it. I've got to have a plan. So me and my discipleship group, we're walking through a plan that uh, goes through most of the Bible in a year. We also do something uh, called journaling. We have journals where we take notes. And look, I'm not a journaler. I don't like to write with my hands, but I do it. I discipline myself to do it because I know it helps me to better think about the Word, to better digest it. And there's other ways like meditation and memorization. These are the disciplines that we need so we can be effective witnesses. So first, we witness by the Word. Second, we witness with God's protection. It's my understanding that chapter 11 is the contents of the little scroll that John eats. And, and let me tell you, Chapter 11 has been historically a particularly difficult chapter in this book. And I feel like I've said this about every chapter in Revelation, but there's really a lot of debate here. So, so look with me at, at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. These two verses have historically been interpreted in one of two ways. Some believe that John is measuring a literal temple. And so some hold to the hope that in the end times, the Jewish temple will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And some people even go to the point of lobbying and praying for that temple to be rebuilt. So it will usher in the return of Christ. The other view is that John is not measuring a literal temple, but rather this temple is a symbol of the church. And I hold this second view, and I'm going to give you just a couple of reasons why I think that, and then let me tell you why that even matters. Well, for one, first reason I think this is the church is these verses say nothing of rebuilding a temple. Right? John is simply told to measure a temple that's already there. And he's not told to just measure the building but he's also told, look at it, to measure those who worship there. He's measuring the people of God. Second reason I think this is the church. The New Testament makes clear that there is no need for a temple anymore. We don't need a temple. God doesn't want us to build another one. In the Old Testament, the, the temple served the purpose of representing the presence of God in the midst of his people. We know it was also the place where sacrifices were made for sins. But what does the New Testament tell us? It tells us that Jesus has fulfilled those purposes, him, those purposes himself. Uh, get this, prophesying the destruction of the temple in the first century, Jesus said this in John 2, 19 and 21. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews, they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But John clarifies, he said, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the temple because he was the temple. He was a living, breathing, walking temple. He was the presence of God in the midst of his people. And we know Jesus also fulfilled the purpose of the sacrifices. 
That's what Hebrews 9 and 10 are all about. The sacrifice of Jesus was once for all time. It's, he forgave all sins. That's why you and me, we didn't bring our bulls and goats here this morning and bring them down front for Jeremy to slaughter them. That would be interesting. We don't need a literal temple anymore. Third reason I think this is the church is building on that second reason. The New Testament also makes clear that the church is the temple today. Not the building, but us, the people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16, he says, For we are the temple of the living God. So since the Holy Spirit lives in us, we as the church are now the temple. And that's what I believe Revelation 11 has in mind here. Then last reason I believe this is the church is because of the context of the book. Revelation was written to a church under attack. What good would a future rebuilt temple do for them? Not much. But rather what this image is teaching us is that God is protecting his people. And think about it. That's why John is measuring. He's measuring out the area of God's protection around his people. Because then we see in verse 2 that the, the area that's not measured, the outer court, the holy city, it's going to be trampled. So if you're still with me this morning, and you're not thinking about the game yet, you're not drifting off to stats and game plans and food, all that theological stuff, it has a simple point. Here it is. As the church witnesses... God will protect us. We don't have to be afraid of persecution or hostility or what people might think or who accepts you or who thinks you're weird or if you fit in or don't fit in or if you lose friends or loved ones. We don't have to worry about that because God will protect us and keep us. Like even in the tribulation when Satan is going berserk, we don't have to fear because we will be kept safe. But we need to make clear God's protection is not a promise of physical protection. It's a spiritual protection because these next verses make clear God's people will face suffering and death. That's the third thing we learn about the witness of the church is we witness in persecution. Let's keep going in chapter 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the, over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. 
and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Man, I know that was a lot of information, so I want to encourage you to go back later and read this again. There's so many interesting things we don't have time to flesh out. But I think the big question for us is, who are these two witnesses? This will not shock you, but scholars are divided on that, okay? <laughs> there are those who believe these will be two literal people. Some say Moses and Elijah are going to come back from the dead, and that would be awesome to get them to autograph my Bible. Now, others say this must be Enoch and Elijah because, well, neither of them really died. I believe that these two witnesses are not to be interpreted as two literal people, but as being represented, uh, representatives of the church. These witnesses are the same people that John measured out for God's protection. And the biggest reason I think this is because these two witnesses are called two olive trees and two lampstands. What's up with that? Well, the two olive trees is a reference to a prophecy from the Old Testament in Zechariah. And to make a long story short, Zechariah in his vision sees two olive trees that he finds out represents Joshua, who was the high priest of the day, and Zerubbabel, who was the governor and leader of the people. What does that have to do with anything? Well, these two men represented the people of God. They were the leaders, just as I believe these witnesses represent the people of God. But these two witnesses are also called lampstands. Where else in Revelation do we see people called lampstands? Right in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus told us that the seven, church, seven lampstands represent the seven churches. So again, I believe these two witnesses, they're, they're telling us about the role of the church during the tribulation. And that role is going to be significant. Do you see some of the things it said? Just like Elijah and Moses are going to do great miracles and have great power. There's going to be a period of time where no one can harm the church. It's going to seem unstoppable from God's protection. Until verse 7. Eventually a beast comes on the scene and kills the witnesses. And we'll see in coming chapters. Actually, I think it's next week where we'll see about the Antichrist. And he's going to persecute and kill many in the church. And there's going to be a period of time where things will seem pretty hopeless. The witness of the church will be lying dead in the street. People will be celebrating, thinking the beast has won. Until one day, God restores the church. He raises them from the dead. Man, the message of this section is that part of our witness as the church is in persecution. And this has been true throughout all of church history. I mean, it's amazing, really, to think about. As world leaders and governments have attempted to destroy the church through persecution, guess what happens? The church grows even more. We've seen this most recently in, in China as a Chinese communist government has attempted to eradicate Christianity over the years. The underground church has thrived. It's quite difficult to estimate accurately how many Christians live in China today because many of them do so in secret. But the best estimates today are that they're over 100 million. This is a pattern we see all throughout the Bible and history. As the church is persecuted, our witness is not suppressed, but rather it is strengthened. And this is why we should not fear hostility and persecution. 
Sometimes Christians get so worked up. Oh, man, if this person comes to power in our country or if this group leads our nation or if this law gets passed, man, we're going to lose our churches and they're going to shut everything down and we're going to lose that. It's all going to be over. Really? Look, we don't want persecution. We shouldn't want persecution. And we certainly we want to fight for religious freedom for all. But we need to understand that nothing will stop the witness of the church. If the day comes when Christians in America are persecuted and churches are burned to the ground, so be it. We will be okay. And we will use that difficulty to testify all the more of Jesus, just as the church has always done. Here's why. Here's the last thing we know about the church's witness. We witness to victory. Finally, we reach the seventh trumpet after this little interlude. And and check out what happens in chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The seventh trumpet is a victory cry. You guys familiar uh, with that phrase? It's, it's all over, bar the shouting. Have you heard that? That means it, it may not be officially over, but it's over. And that's what we witness to. We do not witness from a place of confusion or uncertainty or fear. No, we witness from a place of victory. We witness to the fact that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Jesus forever and ever. Look, as the church, our job is to witness. And not just in the end times. But now. Today. And we witness by the word. With God's protection, in persecution, and to victory. So what about you? Are you a witness? Do you understand the calling you have from Jesus? When is the last time you witnessed? And when's the last time you told someone about Jesus? How are you using the the things that God has given you to witness to the coming victory of Jesus Christ? Because it is coming. Like that is our calling. That is our mission. Now and until Christ returns. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.